Are you on dope? Yes. What kind? Musical dope. You get high? Yes. Oh, for what? Music. Are you on a trip or something? Yes. What kind of a trip? Music. How old are you? I'm old in mind, but young in age. Hi, this is McKellen Roderick, and you're listening to Soul Discovery with Mick O'Donnell. Snow, 23 inches of it, is on the ground in the south suburban area this afternoon. That was the grand total as of 9 this morning. It included another 2.8 inches that fell during the early morning hours. What is segregation? I don't know what segregation is. Uh, what is bigotry? I don't know what bigotry is. What does uh, hatred mean? I don't know what it is. Uh, what is uh, prejudice? Um, I think it's when somebody's sick. Right here, shot, boy. We will not tolerate lawlessness. We will not endure violence. It matters not by whom it is done or under what slogan or banner. It will not be tolerated. Detroit, Michigan, Motortown, Motown. This is the Motown Sound.
absolutely amazing book has just surfaced and it's called Detroit 67 and the writer Stuart Crosgrove. Good evening, Stuart. Good evening, Mick. It's good to be on the show. Yeah, hi, Stuart. Uh, uh, we'll start off with January because it opens up with the snowfall. Things are happening with the Supremes. Mickey Stevens on the verge of leaving and there's so much more happening with the DJs around the area of Detroit that meant so much to Motown at the start of their scene. Well, it's I tell insight. you what, uh, we start really with um, quite a dramatic opening because on the 1st of January 1967, uh, uh, the city of Detroit is beset by one of the worst snowstorms in its history, and uh, effectively the city is kind of paralysed, and there's no, uh, the, you know, most of the schools are off, most of the workplaces are kind of on short time, and a city kind of synonymous with the clatter of industry has fallen kind of almost eerily silent. Uh, we we pick up with Barry Gordy, who's at home in in a house uh, in Outer Drive in Detroit that later in the year he gives as a gift to his sister, who's married to Marvin Gaye. Now, uh, the house has become important for a whole range of reasons, but uh, we're also coming into the beginnings of a year that will have a huge impact uh, on Motown as a corporation. But as the book uh, suggests, it will also have a transformative uh, impact on the history of soul music itself. And so what happens really is that we follow the month in all its detail and pick up the key threads of what's going on. Uh, Very early in the year, a young guy uh, in Royal Oak dies in the snow, um, and it's clear that he's maybe been out in New Year drinking and and imbibes too much whiskey and dies and asphyxiates. But it's the beginning of a series of kind of strange, uh, if not unexplained, certainly unusual deaths throughout the year that the book follows. Um, and one of the things that happens in the year is that Mickey Stevenson, who's effectively, if you like, the foreman of Motown, leaves to set up his own label with his wife, Kim Weston. Now, Stevenson is significant in one key respect, in that he is the kind of controlling influence on the Funk Brothers, the kind of uh, band of kind of notorious band of musical brothers that are in the Snake Pit Studios in, in, in Motown. And Stevenson's loss is a, ends up being quite a significant loss for Motown, not least because uh, Barry Gordy makes the inadvisable decision, which he takes kind of as a kind of short-term measure, uh, to promote the Holland brothers, um, you know, Brian and Eddie Holland, into more senior roles within the company, um, uh, thinking that that will placate you know, uh, issues with them because they're starting to claim uh, greater royalties, uh, significant, they want to own stock in the company and particularly in Jobet, um, Motown's publishing company. And uh, Gordy thinks it will be a kind of peacemaking exercise, but what actually it does is it sows further discontent in the managerial levels of Motown, which unfold as the year goes on. So it's a really dramatic beginning. You meet all the characters against this curious backdrop of a snowstorm that has another impact is that for the first time uh, in the 60s, Detroit uh, doesn't break even because it's so many public costs related to the snow that you, you see the beginning of the failures of the city's budgets, which, as we all know, many decades later leads to the bankruptcy of the city. Other significant things that were happening in the, that period of time was uh, the movement towards uh, anti-Vietnam and John Sinclair with the MC5's The Steering Committee. Yeah, jo- 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 John Sinclair is... Um, uh, a secondary character in the book, but he runs through the book. And one of the reasons I wanted to follow the steering committee, which, as you say, is this kind of curious group of kind of anti-war activists 
who are part of the Detroit Artist Workshop, they, they become quite significant as the year unfolds as well, not only in their opposition to the war in Vietnam, uh, but they become the kind of organisational um, committee, effectively, that run the careers of uh, MC5, Detroit's most notorious garage rock band. And that takes you on a, a parallel journey of two different scenes that coexisted in Detroit, um, the R&B and soul scene, which is the scene that we are probably most, um, you know, passionate about. But this other kind of uh, scene that's that's kind of also come out of R&B, but has become almost a kind of acid and kind of garage rock scene. Uh, and that story is, is also fascinating in its own right. But it's quite curious that these two scenes coexisted, but very, very rarely met and crossed. It was almost as if I'm describing Detroit as a city with its own informal apartheid system where the black community and the community of R&B around Motown and around labels like La Beat and Palmer and Rictic and all of those are going on their journey whilst elsewhere these other um, you know, quite significant, uh, uh, significant achieving bands that ends up being MC5, Iggy and the Stooges and things like that are going on in a very different type of community in Detroit. Yeah, and uh, also, which is fascinating, fascinating read of the big split between the Supremes. The Supremes are actually uh, in January in <coughs> residency at the Doval Hotel in Miami, uh, and it follows almost every stage on their journey. One of the reasons I spell out their travelling as extensively as I do in the book and with real kind of detail of research of where they are almost every day in 1967 is to illustrate how draconian, how challenging, and, and actually how damaging uh, travel had been to the Supremes, the three girls who grew up together in, in the Brewster project, projects, uh, by this time now are starting to crumble and fall out. There's a lot of kind of personal animosity between all three of them, uh, things that began as kind of petty little kind of niggles on the road have grown into really quite profound kind of disagreements. And it's clear as well that uh, Barry Gordy's relationship with Diana Ross has exaggerated that and exacerbated it, and that Florence Ballard, the original leader of the Supremes, is gradually being kind of marginalised into being effectively a background singer within the group, and that creates the kind of um, origins of a, a significant fallout between all three of the Supremes, with Mary Wilson, the third Supreme, um, being caught in the middle of this, this dispute in ways that are sometimes actually quite emotionally damaging for her as well. So it's a book that looks uh, at all three of the Supremes, and I think I try very, very fairly in it to try and see the, the disputes and the perspectives through the eyes of all three of them. There's a lot of books that side with one or the other. They kind of see, they want to see Florence Ballard as a victim that was hard done by, that was put upon, um, and that was kind of, if you like, targeted by uh, Diana Ross and Barry Gordy. And I think that that's not entirely true or fair. Uh, but equally, it's true that there was a lot of animosity around. And the book tries to kind of be honest and, 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 and kind of goes back to primary sources to try and analyse exactly what was going on and what led to the uh, B uh, Florence Ballard leaving the group uh, in the July uh, of 1967, but not really in the end, uh, staying on contract till the end of the year.
The other things that were happening as well with the DJs around the Detroit area was uh, Frantic Ernie Durham and the guys Joe Howard and Larry Dean. They were changing because they were the guys that brought it to Detroit in the first place with Motown and Barry Gordy relied on them guys, but he was phasing them out. I think the reason that I talked about that generation of DJs, you know, they're... Um, uh, Tolleen, Larry Dean, uh, you know, there's uh, the Queen, Martha, uh, uh, the Queen, uh, and you've got guys like uh, Frantic Kearney Durham, is the R&B DJs of that era, they, they were almost like modern shaman, they had an awful lot of kind of influence in the community, they could break records, they could, they could c- communicate messages to what was largely an African-American, um, uh, you know, listenership. But gradually they became the radio stations that young white people started to listen to and they fell in love with Detroit R&B and with the R&B more widely of America. But something was happening in their life as well, that their world was starting to slightly fall away as well as more and more young people were turning to concert music as the transistor radio, which ironically Barry Gordy had uh, helped insert into the car plants when he worked in the plants, were beginning to kind of be the the carriers, if you like, of um, new music, FM radio starting, television was beginning to be at its height, and people were taking their entertainment from a range of different sources. And sad as it is, Mick, I'll not say this too long, it's too painful, the role of the DJ, a radio DJ, began to crumble a little bit and didn't have uh, the influence it did. And that became significant when Detroit um, went into meltdown during the riots. What role could the radio DJs do to try and calm the riots? And, And the answer was not a lot. Tears. 
At the start of February, there were stories coming out that Florence Ballard had started seeing her chauffeur, <laughs> yeah, Barry Gordy's chauffeur, by the way, Tommy Chapman, and uh, that led on to other things in the book later on. How significant was that? Yes, um, during a trip to um, Japan, uh, Florence Ballard falls in love with Tommy Chapman, who uh, paradoxically is Barry Gordy's chauffeur. Um, and that, as you can imagine there, the levels of intensity and paranoia and that are now uh, growing. And uh, he becomes an important character in the, the breakup of the Supremes in as much as he begins to have ambitions. Having, you know, you can wholly understand this, <clears throat> having been around Motown for maybe three or four years as a driver and witnessing all that's going on, he starts to have ambitions that he too can get a piece of this action and become a, 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 a music producer, run his own label. And that was, you know, that might sound a wee bit kind of um, ambitious now, but remember at the time, you know, as, as those of us that are obsessed with the kind of dance music and rare soul scene know, uh, Detroit was going through a kind of soul Klondike. I mean, you had all of these labels, you know, La Beat, Palmer, Rictic, um, all the Motown subsidiaries and uh, Whip Records and Dotties and all of these independent labels, all of whom were seeking to try and kind of make or break into the uh, distribution chain of America. And Chapman thought, well, I want a bit of that. And uh, he decided to try to encourage Florence Ballard to break from Motown. And he, in lots of ways, that's something her family often talked about as well. And the the book tries to be very generous about this because I think, um, putting Chapman aside, I think there's no question that Ballard's family uh, had her best interests at heart. Of that, there's no doubt most families do. But sometimes, you know, and you see this in, 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 in life all the time, families can sometimes influence you because they love you a lot or they care about you, and they sometimes can give you bad advice as well as good advice, you know. Um, and I think it started to grow in the February that um, the Ballard family and Tommy Chapman began to convince uh, Ballard that she was being cheated by Motown, that she was being edged out of the group in order that Diana Ross could have a more prominent or lead role within the group, and that Barry Gordy and, and Diana Ross were conspiratorial, trying to kind of bu uh, bumper. And, and in that sense, they were they, the, the, it was not entirely untrue, but feeding that anxiety was probably not a, a, a great thing at the time. I feel a pounding in my brain Ice cold water running through my veins Got a bad taste in my mouth from bitter tears Heart feeling sad cause love's gone bad I see a rainbow all in black Must be a sign you ain't coming back Wake up at night calling your name I see a face 
Chris Clark started going out with Barry Gordy, who was seeing Diana Ross at the time? Yes, um, I take a two or three pages uh, to explain uh, Barry Gordy's um, love life at this time. And it is quite, for a man that believed in family values, he ran kind of... Uh, fast and loose with those values it was quite it's quite funny actually because um a friend of mine a colleague of mine on the soul scene has just sent a book over to Barry, so i've not had a reaction from him yet but when he reads this bit of it i think there'll be slightly because he's an older man now there'll probably be a little bit of a glint in his eyes because he's he's been married and divorced twice i think he's got something like four or five kids um, he's having an affair with um, Dana Ross, by then the most famous black female singer in the world, and along comes Chris Clark, who all of us know was a kind of dusty Springfield lookalike, a gorgeous white blonde woman uh, who would have been tempting in almost every respect if you're a young man. And here's Barry Gordy uh, against the backdrop of a time when mixed race relationships are still frowned upon. In fact, his, one of his best teenage friends, um, Jackie Wilson, had actually been arrested only uh, in, earlier in 1967 for uh, sleeping with a white woman on tour when he was on tour in the Deep South. And so um, the, the whole idea of mixed marriages was very much in the air. And so there was a degree of kind of sexual controversy around it. Nonetheless, Barry Gordy gets off with uh, Chris Clark, who he's been always throughout all of his uh, career since and throughout all of his, the books he's written, the interviews he's given, been hugely generous to her as someone who he considers to be a real kind of talent, a significant artist, someone who influenced him as much as, you know, he influenced her. Um, and uh, at one stage, he starts to begin to, with this breakup going on in the Supremes, he starts to believe that maybe the time has come in modern America that the Supremes themselves could become a mixed race group and that Chris Clark might be able to replace Florence Ballard if she leaves the group. Now, it would be uh, for anybody that has had a, a time when they're playing away from home or they're having affairs or whatever, what a catastrophic idea that was. But nonetheless, it was something that Barry um, thought about, but it was soon uh, cold water was poured in it by his own sisters, by his confidants, by people close to him, Smokey Robinson and things like that, saying, bad idea, let's focus on finding a replacement and the person that they identified after many many uh, weeks of kind of uh, people considering people including local Detroit artists they started to um, they started to look at Cindy Birdsong then of Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells uh, who they toured with and who Diana Ross had struck up a good relationship with uh, and so Birdsong who is, is from Camden in New Jersey so near Philadelphia was um, targeted although she was herself uh, tied into a fairly strict uh, contract with the, the Bluebells and it made it difficult to get her out of the contract. So uh, a lack of clarity comes on and, and uh, Ballard is still in the group and all the rest of it. So there's an awful lot going on. I, I don't know how he had time to have affairs. Uh, with yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Lucky lad. Yeah. With uh, what was happening in Motown itself, the purchase of Golden World and Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong working on the Marvin Gaye heard it through the grapevine, which was in 67 in February. Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically, they started working on that and it took, I wonder, you know, it took some, some like six or seven months for Whitfield eventually to convince Barry Gordy that it was worth even recording, never mind releasing. Um, and he'd, he'd taken the song around three or four acts, I think, uh, the Isley Brothers, Smokey Robinson, people like that, and then eventually Gladys Knight and then Marvin Gaye. And um, I think there was a feeling there that um, in, in the mind of Barry Gordy that um, 
Norman Whitfield could be effectively a bit of a pest and nuisance. He kept, you know, he kept pursuing him about it. And Gordy admits it's one of the biggest kind of instinctive mistakes he made, not understanding how good a song it was. And there were different versions of it. I mean, some of which have come to light since. But um, you know, old kind of studio tracks and things like that. But uh, you know, it was clearly one of the greatest soul records of all time. And there was such a kind of delay in even allowing it studio time. So, but Norman Whitfield becomes more, much more important later in the story, towards the end of the year, when he becomes really the first pioneer and innovator of the kind of so-called psychedelic soul. When the influence is coming out of the counterculture and coming out of kind of um, you know the kind of new age and the anti-war scene, whatever start to really kick in. That would be around the kind of November and Jan- uh, December, and then January '68 or whatever. Um, so the book has to set up these characters in order to come return to them as and their significance in order to give you some sense of how Motown was working. You know. Yeah, March. Well, we'll talk about uh, the mothers of Motown: rats, roaches. Struggle, talent, guts and love, the housing debate, the hate mail that was coming through, the whites only Sherwood Forest project. Yeah, I, I, March, I try to focus in each of the um, chapters on, if you like, a theme. And March is really about housing and home ownership in Detroit in 1967, which is a fascinating story. Uh, I mean, this is uh, at the height of kind of the open housing movement um, across the whole of the USA when legislation was coming in, um, civil rights legislation to uh, allow fairness into the housing market to stop discrimination against um, black house owners or or, or purchasers of houses or whatever. And Detroit, um, I tried to make the point that Detroit is a, socially very kind of diverse city where there's a very big and successful black middle class of whom the Gordy family if you looked at Norman Whitfield's own family his uncle Sidney Barthwell was one of the big kind of cafe owners or soda fountain owners and chemists across the whole of the city he owned a kind of chain of chemist stores so there's a kind of black middle class that had money uh, and were persisting with wanting to improve their lot as everyone does and buy houses in better neighbourhoods and things like that um, Barry Gordy was looking for a new home, which eventually became Motown Mansion in the Boston Edison district of Detroit. But he'd actually also put in a bid for a for a house in a place called Sherwood Forest in near the Palmer Park Golf Club, and where um, there was co- local covenants. There weren't laws; there were covenants in, embedded within the contracts of the homeowners that no one could sell a house on to someone that effectively wasn't white um, or non-Caucasian. And that meant that the discrimination by the house seller uh, meant that Barry Gordy was refused access to the house he first wanted, which now, when you look back at it, it feels kind of a, a catastrophic discrimination. But nonetheless, that was there. Now, in an interview in that month, um, Barry Gordy uh, had given an interview to Newsweek where he'd asked them to explain um, Motown's success. And he had used, used this quote about rats and roaches and all the rest of it. And his own mother um, went, uh, went absolutely berserk with him, saying, at no stage in your life have you ever lived in a house with other rats and roaches. This is demeaning for us as a family. You're telling lies and all the rest of it. And it was actually a real scolding he got for this. And it coincided with a, a slightly kind of bitter experience that Diana Ross had had where she told rather innocently a story um, that she'd been in the Deep South and the, the, just very innocently the 
uh, interviewer had said to her, what took you down to the deep south to live? And she said, oh, it was one summer I was staying with my grandmother because my own mother um, had uh, tuberculosis. Now, at that time, tuberculosis was seen in America as a disease of poverty. It was in Britain here, too. And, um, uh, and uh, Dana Ross's mother, the only time ever, Ernestine Ross, who was our, probably our greatest ever mentor and supporter, fell out with them. They didn't speak for six months because Ernestine Ross felt her daughter had betrayed her by implying that she had come from an unclean house. Or, you know. So there was all of these things going on about the standard of living, about home ownership, about the quality of housing, about the housing ladder and all the rest of it. And it's just a fascinating read. I mean, because, I, you know, there's a, a woman called Lee Dawson, who's a, otherwise a kind of small singer in the Detroit scene, who was, was in the kind of wider pool of people that might have made it to Motown. She worked for Magic City Records, sang with the Choker Campbell Orchestra, and she was involved in a very kind of acrimonious fight with a slum landlord, who was renting a house to her that was rat-infested, and she often kind of did demos outside houses and outside offices, civic offices, where she would turn up with the kind of amplifier and actually sing civil rights songs and soul songs and all the rest of it, uh, you know, demonstrating against um, bad housing. And all of this is going on in, in a city that is going through immense change, immense social change, um, you know, much happening, some of it too fast and whatever, and you're caught up with a city that's kind of now, now teetering on the brink of kind of breaking apart, you know. Uh, the Mothers of Soul, uh, Mothers of Motown, sorry. What was that? Yeah. What I wanted to do with this was to also point to something else, which was that the generation before uh, Barry Gordy's uh, own mother, Bertha, um, Ernestine Ross, who I've just mentioned, and uh, a significant influence on the history of Detroit soul, a woman called Carmen Murphy, are now kind of elderly ladies who are kind of Christian mothers, effectively. They're all kind of prominent in the church. They're all people who, you know, kind of do uh, work in the civil rights movement and all the rest of it. And Carmen Murphy, uh, who owns a, she owns a chain, a franchise, really, of um, beauty salons across Detroit at the time, uh, and it's named House of Beauty. Now, uh, Detroit collectors of, of indie Detroit music will know the Hob label, which was an early forerunner of Motown, and Hob was House of Beauty. It was Carmen Murphy's own label. And she started by 67. She was long you know, disinterested in the independent music scene and had actually focused wholly on running America's biggest northern franchise for black women, for manicures, pedicures, you know, uh, all the kind of... Um, all the kind of stuff of beauty therapy and things like that. A very successful woman. But had been a, a significant influence on Gordy and in actual fact had said to him at one point, I've got some kind of labels I no longer want. And Hob didn't really make sense to him. The House of Beauty, it was still her brand and she wanted to keep that. But she had another um, label brand called Soul um, and uh, he wanted to buy that or she wanted to sell it to him. Uh, and they agreed a, a peppercorn a con contract of a dollar, I mean a US dollar, just to exchange it. It was done as simply as that. No one placed any significant value on it. But of course that became one of the big Motown subsidiaries and actually became the uh, the word soul, the word that kind of fascinates us all to this day. And uh, it's strange to think that this elderly woman had actually sold the the, the rights to the label Soul Music uh, over for a dollar at that time, but it was never seen as anything that was kind of, there was no bad blood around it, it was just she'd moved on, no longer important, and, and he took on the name. 
Um, so the, the the book tries also to understand Motown in a very different way. It's not about it's not always about the artists and the, the the records and when they were released. There's some of that in it. It's more about what were the forces that were shaping it as a as the most successful Black American music label of all time.1967, April, LSD arrives in the city. Uh, LSD arrived in Detroit in quite a kind of profound way. I mean, I think the first Motown artist that admits uh, having taken LSD um, was Martha Reeves. Um, But in actual fact, it was prolific across the city, uh, particularly coming through the kind of emergence of hippie movement within uh, Detroit. Um, And it also coincided with the uh, two major conferences, a conference of both psychiatrists and psychologists that arrived in the city, both of whom sought to analyze this new drug that was kind of being talked about in almost every form of um, media. Uh, And it was... uh, we started to see the emergence of the word 
hallucination or hallucinogenic, and that started to kind of permeate the language of 1967. Firstly, the uh, big... Uh, acid rock movement of whom MC5, the Detroit band, were one of the kind of um, uh, prominent figures in. But increasingly it was a term that you started to pick up in uh, Motown as well. It was something that Barry Gordy understandably felt hostile to because he was still arguing a different thing, which is that in uh, America was not always uh, given a fair hearing and that the last thing that he wanted Motown to be associated with with, with drug taking. Now at one level he was he, he's being very very economic about uh, with the truth if he believes that there was no drug taking at Motown because you know, we know there was but nonetheless he didn't want the reputation um, to, to seep through that Motown was in any way a drug based company so he kind of banned uh, the use of kind of hallucinogenic imagery on, on record labels and those kinds of things. And it wasn't until later in 1967 and into 1968 when psychedelic soul starts to become a subgenre of soul music in its own right that there's a more kind of, you know, uh, that, 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 that people like Norman Whitfield and that start to embrace that influence, you know. And one more thing about April was the opening sentence was George Overman Jr. was found dead in an elevator. Yes, um, basically the death of George Overman, uh, who's actually a band leader, he was a a band player rather, he played in the Detroit Police Band, a young white guy who's uh, murdered in Cobo Hall in the centre of Detroit. Uh, And the murder, because he's the the victim of a, a, a killing, a random street killing by... Uh, a, a couple of young black um, thugs. His um, his death becomes the big story, talking point of the of the month, and it, it kind of um, is one of a number of things that alienates the police force from, if you like, the Motown generation of young kind of uh, black kids. Interestingly enough, they arrest the two people that killed George Overman at exactly the same moment, almost exactly the same moment to the hour that Florence Ballard is effectively being sacked from the Supremes at Berry Gordy's home in Outer Drive in Detroit. And quite extraordinary that being able to kind of research down to that level of detail allowed me as a writer to play things off simultaneously, one of, one of which is this dispute with the um, Supremes, the other of which is the police investigating the murder of a, of a young a trombonist in a police band. So there's quite a lot of kind of stuff in it that's about the city of Detroit at the time as well as the history of Motown. I'm doing fine up here on fire. 
yourself a chance, son. Don't let life pass you by. But the world of reality of a rat race, where only the strongest survive. It's a dog eat dog world, and that ain't no lie. It ain't even safe no more to walk the streets at night. forward to May there was the unrest was starting to big cracks were starting to appear and the police force was starting to feel it and they they come up with this thing called blue flu yeah blue flu is a kind of thing that kind of again emerges in this uh, era blue flu is when the police and the firemen of Detroit are not allowed by covenant they're not allowed to go on strike they're banned from striking as part of their conditions of service so what the police started to do was to um, sign off work, pretend they were ill, refuse to go on shifts and whatever. And it became known as, the virus became known as the blue flu because of their blue uniforms. And it was actual fact it was a form of strike action where the police were going on strike about uh, the conditions they were working under, the kind of um, the, the, the disrespect that was being shown to them. Um, and uh, this blue flu just swept through the city and other related cities, Lansing and Flint, Michigan, whatever. And it sets up the idea of Detroit as being a city where even the police are going on strike. Strikes are kind of prominent throughout the year in the car plants and the um, other ancillary industries, even even in kind of the farming industries and all the rest of it. But it's the blue flu, the, the, the surrogate strike by the police officers that causes most of the kind of mayhem of that, that period. Yeah, and outside the city itself, outside Detroit in Washington, uh, President Johnston's asking Congress for £20 million for human resources for the USA because of what's happening at home as well as in Vietnam, which is starting to have its consequences. Yes, indeed. I mean, these are 
things are going on here which are, you know, is kind of um, kind of balancing act within the uh, budget where more resource for Vietnam has a direct impact in Detroit, which uh, was the most successful city under the, the then mayor of Detroit, um, uh, Mayor Kavanaugh. He had been the, probably the best mayor at extracting public funding for um, social projects, for investment and anti-poverty programs and all the rest of it. And if that money was not available because it was being spent on the military in Vietnam, it had a disproportionate impact in Detroit as inner city programs were cancelled and were were, were were shortened and whatever, thus leaving uh, the, the difficult situation of young unemployed men uh, who were not recruited into the army being on the streets in the summer and people feared that the summer of 1967 would ignite, which of course the book takes you in the journey and shows you that it does ignite, you know. Yeah, it does. And uh, June, well, we're going to get through this book quickly. Uh, fruit. <laughs> we have to, we'll wait through it. In fruit. June, Muhammad Ali yeah. arrives in the city um, like a messenger from God and he is just at the height of his kind of notoriety and power. He actually comes to fight a young... Um, a local heavyweight, a guy called Alvin Blue Lewis. Now, Alvin Lewis has just come out of Jackson State Penitentiary, um, and he is your classic kind of hard man boxer. I mean, he's a convicted um, armed robber. He's, he's a very, very... Uh, comes from a family with a very violent past and all the rest of it, and he's boxed his way through the Golden Gloves, through the ranks, and this is his night when he fights Ali. And uh, he fights Ali in an exhibition bout in the Cobo Hall, and um, in the end, Ali wins the fight and leaves Detroit, um, and that's effectively his last ever fight before he's stripped of his titles the following Monday when in Houston, Texas, he refuses the draft and refuses to fight in Vietnam. And that triggers a kind of... One of those things that slightly disappeared into history was it was a kind of tension, a war almost, between Muhammad Ali and the Supremes. Muhammad Ali believed... And the, and the nation of Islam believed that the, the Supremes were far too close to the president, far too close to the, uh, the war effort. And in actual fact, in that month, you see them performing at a president's fundraising dinner, whilst Muhammad Ali is part of a major uh, anti-war demonstration outside the building. So it has this kind of theme of Vietnam. And throughout the whole of uh, June, uh, you know, body bags coming back into Detroit of young men dead. The one that I focus on for the purposes of kind of, this is for my northern soul boy hat on here, for the purposes of kind of hardcore Detroit collectors, is the death of Diamond Jim Riley's son, David Riley, who's killed in Vietnam. And Diamond Jim Riley, who's a notorious R&B indie label uh, owner, um, he's banned like the Rivieras and things like that. Hey, Diamond Jim can't believe that his son's dead. And, and seeks assurances from General Westmoreland, the head of the Vietnam War effort. And uh, the, the reports are of him crawling about in his house, uh, reduced to tears, howling like a dog, and people kind of believing that this was one of the hardest men in Detroit, reduced to real kind of me mental breakdown because of the loss of his son. And I thought there was something really interesting in that, that we, we tend not to kind of fully understand that within the soul scene. We tend to just count people as being a label owner, or he was this, he was that, he brought out this record, oh, this is rare, oh, this is a great track, or whatever. And never actually the stories behind these people in the depth I'd like to, to read on about, you know. Yeah, and uh, Mr. Diamond, uh, 
boxing promoter and R&B producer, record label. He, he da- died a sad life later on, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He, he died in the actually in the dance floor of a club called the Watts uh, Mozambique, which is a club in inner city Detroit. He was shot um, uh, and entered uh, a fight with uh, another man, and the man shot him, and he died. 72 or 73, I think he died in the floor of Watts Mozambique, which I, I saw yesterday. Um, and it was a great big jazz club at the time and very strong kind of R&B club of the era, uh, but it moved into the 80s and 90s into kind of exotic dancing. And I believe only the day before yesterday, it was burnt to the ground in Detroit. I think may well have been an insurance job, but I couldn't possibly comment, you know. <laughs> you too. <laughs> yeah, but other things were happening at, around the USA. The soldiers that were in mm. Vietnam had reached 385,000. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem possible when we live through that. It was yeah, really- I know, it's just extraordinary. And, and, of course, the whole of Vietnam, I mean, one of the things, of course, is that... Um, we, we forget as well, you know, I, I, I researched like hell the, the, the story of Vietnam because the number of people, of course, um, uh, that are Motown artists, I mean, uh, both uh, Roosevelt Ross, Dana Ross's brother, uh, Mary Wilson's brother, uh, Marvin Gaye's uh, nephew, Marvin Gaye's own brother, Frankie Gaye, um, G.C. Cameron, of course, uh, Motown artist, all of these people were... Um, in Vietnam, were fighting in Vietnam, uh, and of course there was a realization, of course, that they didn't enjoy the equality that they thought they would as soldiers fighting for the American war effort, and were often discriminated against in the war effort as much as they had been at home. So it tells all of those stories as well, and in the process of it, tells a rather bizarre story about Rick James being on the run from the military. Uh, he himself is in a Canadian band called the Minor Birds at the time, but he's actually run on the run from the American military as an absconder. So it kind of follows all of these and gives you a more kind of holistic sense of um, soul music against the backdrop of Vietnam. Yeah, George Clinton once said that the other side of the border of Detroit was 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 Detroit itself because everybody yep. was trying to uh, avoid the draft at the time and, and escape yeah acro- uh, under the tunnel or across the bridge into Canada you know and uh, one significant thing that came out of Vietnam was a letter by uh, Ronald Ward absolutely amazing that letter frightening yeah and Ronald Ward's a young guy who has been um, you know he, he's actually uh, uh, been in the front line and uh, he goes absent without leave I mean it's due to a kind of you know, there's two guys at the time, one of whom's got a kind of infection in his feet, the other of whom ha- has been on duty, and they, they disobey a commanding officer and end up in uh, in jail in Vietnam, and I follow the story of that. And one of the reasons that I want to sto- follow that story is that um, uh, Ronald Ward, I, he's the nephew of Sam Ward, uh, of Sister Lee fame, and his uh, father is a very famous minister in Detroit. So again, I'm trying to connect him back into the soul scene, but at the same time also demonstrate the power that um, that um, ministers had within Detroit to be able to make things happen in terms of the kind of politics of the city. And that case was the case that most convinced uh, black families that their sons were being mistreated in Vietnam. Uh, and so it became a cause celebre in Detroit in the summer of 67. If you're just joining me, my special guest is Stuart Crosgrove. Stuart, the last thing that happened in June was the death of Danny Thomas. Yes, um, uh, an infamous um, killing in uh, uh, Detroit. A young 
black man uh, and his wife who's pregnant and he has just returned literally as a decorated war hero from Vietnam uh, and they're walking through a park in central Detroit and they come across this group of young guys who are uh, drunk, uh, the white guys, they're actually young Polish guys and that becomes significant because of the kind of dispute with the, between the African American and the Polish community that underpins some of the rioting and uh, they, um, they, they murder Danny Thomas and uh, leave his wife uh, screaming for fear in this kind of uh, uh, a parks uh, office in, in the middle of this park. They'd been having a, well, I think it's called a kegger in America, a kind of drinks night in a park. It had all gone horribly wrong. But what the story tells you is that this black war hero who's returned is murdered on the streets of his own city. Um, because one of the reasons I thought was really important to tell that story was that um, it can often be the presumption within Detroit that in that period, you know, that black people were the victims, or sorry, were the criminals, uh, when in actual fact here there's plenty of evidence of, of black people in that time being the victims of crime as much as the perpetrators of it. Yeah, intense reading. The the book's available. Uh, well, will be. It's out there. We'll give you the details later on. But moving to July, some highlights in July, which are just fascinating, unbelievable. The Blind Pig, the Motor City's burning, the National Guard paratroopers arrive. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, called the Night of Hallucinations. I mean, basically, uh, there's a, uh, a party in a blind pig for returning Vietnam um, veterans, they're having a coming home party. Uh, a blind pig, infamously in Detroit, is an illegal kind of what we would call a rave or a party or a, a illegal night or a kind of northern soul night. It's that type of thing. And basically, um, uh, undercover cops try to get in because under Detroit law at the time, uh, in order to prove that it's illegal, the barman of the of the blind pig has to try to serve you a drink. And the, and the police need evidence that that was happening, not just that people were congregating, but that the liquor licenses were being disobeyed and whatever. And they return, and by three in the morning, one of the police officers who had been rejected two or three times manages to uh, sneak in, and they, and they put out an arrest. Uh, but there are still 70 people inside the building, which is an old print works building. And uh, the, one of the doors is jammed, so they take them out into the main street, uh, but there's no paddy wagons or police wagons to take them off to the station. So the 70 people who are still celebrating, enjoying themselves, drink had been taken, uh, are partying out on the street, and the crowd gathers and gathers and gathers, and just out of nowhere, bottles start getting thrown, and the next thing you know, uh, Detroit erupts into, well, probably the worst riot in urban America. It's certainly in the 60s. I mean, you know, ends up with 47 people dead, you know, thousands injured, property devastated, the whole of the kind of inner city, uh, you know, reduced to uh, smoke and rubble and whatever, and one of the kind of worst, as I say, uh, riots of, of the era. So it's just a remarkable, and I go through it hour by hour in that because so many of the stories are actually stories that I think for soul fans are really interesting. Um, you know, quite a lot of the big record shops of the period are burnt to the ground. Some of the recording studios that had been famous for kind of the Detroit soul sound are destroyed. Uh, artists are having to escape through the night and all the rest of it. So it's a very, it's, it's a soul view of something that's been written about in terms of, purely in the terms of urban crisis before, and I focus on the soul music side of it. Yeah, especially one of the the saddest stories that uh, I knew about, but I didn't know the in-depth of it. 
the dramatics when they arrived. Yeah, the dramatics, the, the very, uh, effectively the last couple of nights of the riots, um, the dramatics had been on stage. They'd been on stage with um, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas and with um, the uh, Parliament and George Clinton uh, earlier in the day. It was a Sunday afternoon matinee of a Motown show at the Fox Theatre. And it's one of their first ever paid shows, the dramatics. They had a hit with Inky Dinky Wine Dang Do, which was out on sport records. And that, that record, although a novelty hit around um, Detroit, it, this was their first, one of their first ever paid gigs. And with the money they'd got, they'd gone off um, uh, north of Woodward to an a infamous kind of motel called the Algiers Motel, which is kind of like an after-party place that a lot of young people would go after. They'd been to the 20 Grand Nightclub in Detroit. And they checked in there, they got uh, a room, um, and then got themselves TV dinners and all the rest of it, and stayed in the, the motel. It's where uh, bands hung out, it's where people passing through were, were there. Funnily enough, um, Chicago Soul fans, a lot of the Chicago Soul singers were there that night, Manny Galore and people like that, who checked in. And so, you know, there was a, you know, an old palm tree, there was a, there was a, a daft kind of, a, you know, a swimming pool thing and all of this. And the consequence of it was that um, the night later, uh, when they were staying in the motel, uh, somebody had let off a starting pistol on the roof of the motel and the police charged it, believing that there were snipers and whatever. And as they ran in, uh, they started shooting. And uh, uh, the, uh, subsequently, I mean, it's a very long story, but subsequently uh, three young black men were killed and... Uh, two members of the Dramatics who had witnessed uh, the killings or had witnessed the events around the killings uh, were beaten so badly that uh, one of them uh, almost died with um, head wounds and the other one had neurological problems. They both left the Dramatics. I mean, it's quite an intense story, but again, it's a, a story that's kind of probably a bit like the Stephen Lawrence case in London. You know, it became one of those stories of where the families never got justice and where there was mistrials and the police were never fully put on trial and whatever. And it's a really, really sad story. The consequences have never been really resolved. Uh, but um, I hadn't been aware until I got into the research how close the dramatics were to witnesses to this whole thing, you know. Yeah, it's a fascinating read. Uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to tease the, the listeners now. You have to buy the book to hear about the rest of the chapters, okay, about the rest of the months. <laughs> yes, but other, that's other, the best uh, way of it. Yeah, it is the, available in all forms. If you if you don't have a lot of money, the cheapest way of getting it is to download it as Kindle. That's only just over three and a half quid. Um, the hardback's the juicy one. That's the one that you can lick. That's the one that will be collectible in the years to come. Mm. And it's uh, up at 25 quid. But, I mean, that's cheap for a Northern Soul record, isn't it? Yeah, I've got to, I've got to pick up a hardback because mine's absolutely worn out now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so good, good, good. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, just to an insight into the rest of it, uh, we're talking about Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell. We're talking about... The Mafia with the jukeboxes, we're talking about phone tapping, undercover agents, Holland Ozier, Holland, Florence Ballard. There's so much more to hear and read about. It's mm -hmm. quite, it's, it's an insight into what happened that year and quite frightening because I'm a collector, I'm, I love my music, but to bring it all together and put it all together is just fascinating. Yeah, um, it's something I'm hugely proud of. I'm, I've worked really hard on it and I've always been a kind of die hard on the kind of uh, scene and I think it's a scene that's got one of the things that I say in the introduction Mick and I, I really mean it is I've been hugely fortunate in my life I've been at 
various different universities have had great um, uh, professional career and all the rest of it. But one of the great kind of knowledge banks that I've drawn on all my life has been the clubs I used to go to, obviously, Wigan Casino and Blackpool Mecca and Stafford and places like that, the 100 Club in London, where some of the most knowledgeable people uh, about soul music have met and, and congregated, and I've learned from them and listened to them and read their fanzines and read their blogs and all the rest of it. And it's just a big, big learning in life, and it's taken me on a journey to write this book that you know I'm, I'm, I'm proud of, really. Yes, Stuart Crossgrove. Detroit 67, thank you very much. Don't forget to join me next week, Soul Discovery, Easter Sunday. Thanks to Stuart Crosgrove. Thanks for being there. Good night.
Where I am, oh, my mother. 